0: This week's episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, host Gordon Spence is speaking with Larry Odlaluk, who at the age of three was a part of the Inuit High Arctic Relocation Program. The High Arctic Relocation Program took place during the Cold War in the 1950s. From 1953 to 1955, the RCMP were acting as representatives of the Department of Resources and Development to settle 92 Inuit in the High Arctic. These directives were given by the Government of Canada under then Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent. In August 1953, seven families from Inukjuak, Northern Quebec, were transported to Greece fjord, including Larry Odlaluk's family. They were promised better living and hunting opportunities in new communities in the High Arctic. They were to be joined by three other families from Pond Inlet on Baffin Island, who were meant to teach them survival skills in the High Arctic. The government stated that these were volunteer families, but the Inuit reported the relocations were forced as a means to assert Canadian sovereignty in the Canadian Arctic archipelago. The families were told they would be returned home after two years if they wished, but the government never honoured these promises. The Inuit were taken aboard the Eastern Arctic patrol ship CGS-CD Howe to Craig Harbour on Ellesmere Island and Resolute Bay on Cornwallis Island. While on the boat, the families learned that they would not be living together, but would be left at three separate locations. The surprising and devastating news caused even the dogs to howl. The families were not supplied with sufficient food or caribou skins. They also had to adjust to the 24-hour darkness and 24-hour sunlight, which does not occur in northern Quebec. It would be many years before any of them saw their ancestral lands again, the relocatees have asserted for many years that they were treated unjustly and misled. They say the relocation was imposed on them against their own wishes, that the government made promises it had no intention of keeping, and that they suffered greatly and became virtual prisoners in the high arctic as a result. On August 18, 2010, in Inukshuk, Nunavik, Minister of Indian Affairs and Northern Development, John Duncan, apologized on behalf of the Government of Canada for the relocation of the Inuit to the High Arctic. As Larry Odlalouk says, and you will soon hear, life goes on, but we must not forget what happened, nor use it as an avenue of hatred.
1: Hello, and welcome to this podcast of Indigenous Roost and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and my guest today is Larry Audeluk. He's an Inuk hunter from uh, Greece Fjord, the most northern community in Canada. He is now an elder, one of the relocatees to the High Arctic. He's a survivor. He's also a grandfather of 12 children and a great-grandfather of four. He was born in Inukjuak, northern Quebec, and was moved up to the High Arctic in August 27th. 1953. He now lives in Grease Fjord, went to school in Grease Fjord, Winnipeg, and Ottawa. He's a truck driver by trade and was a sports hunter guide from 1993 to 1995. Hello, Larry, and welcome. Happy you can join us today. Hello. Yes, I am glad to be here. Maybe you can just begin by telling us uh, maybe a little bit more about yourself and what you do today and about the community of Grease Fjord.
2: A um, number of things. If there's such a thing as perks of being an elder, my wife and I are starting to enjoy that and getting a lot of uh, children and grandchildren attention, when, whatever we do. And they have much interest in what we can offer. We are semi-retired. I am semi-retired. My wife is uh, retired from work, but she's still very active seamstress very much involved in uh, traditional clothes making and teaching and is involved in many community uh, functions. Um, I am the economic development officer for the Hamlet and I have been since 2015. I enjoy uh, still being outdoors quite a bit, uh, as I told you, involving my children and grandchildren and slowly passing on my knowledge And most importantly, I have been involved in the relocation issue because it had such a huge impact in my life and many others in our family. It's uh, an event that happens to you in life that is one of those things you cannot forget. And many things that happen in our lives revolve around the relocation. But at the same time, I am trying to pass on the legacy, especially the negative legacy, pass it on to a bad experience, which I hope never to be repeated, either through my family or for anyone in the North, for that matter, or Canada, because the uh, insensitivity of the bureaucracy uh, at the time was such that many lives were altered and many families were left behind, which sadly for many uh, were never reunited. So I have been very involved in making every effort to remind the government of the day, as we live up here, that it is still difficult, not so much in the physical sense, but in terms of equality, uh, when it comes to what most Canadian thousands of us and other people take for granted uh, is still not available up here cost of living and uh, making Nunavut life easier is still very difficult It is still very expensive and uh, so I am very much uh, involved in making others aware uh, life up here but at the same time I use it as a learning curve that I hope to pass to my children that do not inherit some of the pain we, we had to endure. And I try to teach them the philosophy of life goes on. We must go on, but not forgetting what happened, but not using it as, um, avenue of hatred, you know, right. you know, we're only human, you know, life must go on. And, uh, You know, don't forget what happened up here. It should not happen to you, but be proud of where you are. So I do lots of stuff still.
1: Well, that's good to hear. You were one of the original relocatees to the high Arctic from Northern Quebec in the early 1950s. Describe what you remember of the first years living in Greece, your your living conditions and the environment.
2: Well, I was very young, just a... three years old, and that's about four, and um, I I remember, of course, like every early childhood memories, bits and pieces, but uh, what I remember is always the face of trauma in my parents' faces, and people that I grew up around, and how serious my parents were uh, indicating that they must have been quite busy trying to absorb everything that was being introduced to them being up here. My memories include how dark the walls were. As it turns out, we were in a tent, and this was probably October, November, and the winter was coming. And the tent we were in was the only place to stay in at night to sleep in because there was not enough snow to make an igloo, it turns out. And those were buffalo hides and muskox hides that were being used for insulation of our little tent. And um, so these are some of the first memories. And also the death of my father the following spring and the trauma of it. And then having to move to another spot because the families didn't want to be where there was sadness and the high mountains. I remember the high mountains, and uh, but I have to tell you, it was in bits and pieces right. the yeah. first two years of my memory. Yeah.
1: I mean, I want to just kind of uh, um, get across to our listeners that the extreme coldness and the climate up there was in the neighborhood of minus 50, I guess, was the average temperature in the winter. In <laughs> in the winter. And you had to live in a tent, right? You had to live in a tent uh, the first couple of years during the winter? The
2: first couple of years, exactly. That's what everybody would say. Uh, After I started going to school and learning how to read and write and learning how to access some of the government documentation that was being kept uh, over time by the government, which was through the RCMP and through the Freedom of Information Act and combining with my parents' stories, and the elders that were involved and some of the bureaucrats involved. The stories were never the same, but the story about the first two years being difficult was something that you often heard about over time. Then when I become older person and carrying on more uh, responsibility to my children while they were learning to live up here, uh, you could understand and appreciate how difficult it must have been for them to endure this. And later in their lives, to say, to say it was the most difficult two years. But throughout the years, for my mother never forgot, and many of my relatives and my uncle, his wife, and my sisters and older brothers and sisters never forgot. And many a times, uh, one of the people that seemed to express it uh, most accurately was my niece, Martha who came in later with her parents, she's always been quite good at describing things that affected her life. What she echoed was also echoed by many of my relatives. But the call was not a paramount issue. What was one of the most enduring surprises my parents talked about was the total darkness that would come in November and part of December, the dark, dark, dark season, which they were not ready for, that was complete surprise to them. Uh, when the sun went in end of October and the day started getting shorter quite quickly themed. and then the darkness, that was numbing for them. That was uh, shock and something you can get away from. That was one of the things. Yes, it is cold. But you have to remember up here, it's a dry cold. I've been in Ottawa, let's say in November, and it's minus 20 in Ottawa. And minus 20 in Greece, it's not the same. The dry cold, and then there's the damp cold. So the dark season and the cold combined, I must have been just horrific for, for my parents.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you that. It's uh, 24 darkness up there in, during the winter months. How did he ever adapt to this and manage to hunt and survive?
2: Well, the menfolk consisted of four families from Inukjuak went to our area because they were supposed to be two each. The original plan, it turned out, was that there were to be two families to resolute, one family from consist of two Inukjuak family, one Pond Inlet. That's three. Four Oji was supposed to be Gwichyur. In this case, it's called Linton Peninsula, which is right across two families from Inugua and one from Pond Inlet, which is three. A third spot was supposed to be Alexander Fjord or Cape Herschel. Same thing, two Inugua families, one Pond Inlet, that's three. Because the ice conditions, too much travel was not possible by ship that year. After attempt, they came back to Greech Fjord, well, where we were. And we end up with six families. And the men folk will go hunting together because they're traveling all the time. And I was very busy. Time for reflection was not as acute as my mother What The women folk, it was my mother and her in-laws and her daughters and the women folk had it toughest because they had to be home, look after the children, look for firewood. That was another issue, no firewood for our stoves, except Heather, until they learn how to use uh, other stuff to warm. So the men would be more active and didn't have as much time to think about many things that uh, women were forced to think about, you know, having to go out into the hills, look for firewood in the dark season. And uh, what
1: about water? What what would you use for drinking water, making tea and that?
2: Thanks for asking that question. That was one of the things that was completely uh, different. There are no lakes nearby, like in Inupdra, where you can find a lake and make a hole and keep it open until it's frozen, and then you can start chipping it away for drinking, melting it and drinking water. Up here, you had no choice but to use the nearest iceberg or some uh, pieces of iceberg that had floated to shore and got frozen in, that had to be hauled. And that was mostly my mom and her other women folk to do that and try to do that in a, in the dark season. It's nine in the morning, but it's dark as much as if it's at nine o'clock at night. No different. Right. Yep. And she had to adjust to that. And the adjustment was something she never forgot. And she talked about some days it was so dark, I would try to get to the main ice, but not knowing where I was. I see this piece of uh, what I considered an iceberg, drinking ice, and I chop at it, and my axe would flint like a flint. Turns out it's a rock, frozen ice on top. So uh, it was very hard for uh, them. The women. So drinking water was an issue,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important part of staying alive is having clean drinking water or any kind of drinking water. When they moved your families up to the high Arctic, you went on a ship, uh, I think it's called a CD Howe. How long was the trip and how was that?
2: The trip, by according to my brothers and sisters, and those sisters and brothers were in between 18, 19, 20 years old. And they were quite in, interested in it. Whereas people like my father, who had much bigger responsibility to worry about, you know, were noticing uh, we're traveling for a long time. And the terrain is is changing. And he noticed that we are getting further away from people and obviously there are less and less people to look at each time we land in the community because they're we're going to a smaller communities. Mm-hmm. They would look at the mountains and look like one of my older sisters thought, wow, look at those mountains and those big rivers coming down. But upon a close inspection, she turns out those were frozen ice. Glaciers? Yeah, frozen ice. She thought they were rivers, they were yeah. frozen ice. That was something she noticed, but some of the other younger ones were just having a great time being on a ship. It was an adventure for them in the beginning, but then the government dropped what I call bombshell. When everybody left Pond Inlet after picking up the Pond Inlet component of the relocatees, which was and as an example. And all the other Inuk people, when they left Pond and Lip, as one of my brothers used to say, when it was too late to turn back, they put us inside part of the ship and had a mass group of people meeting versus the government and the interpreters and said, by the way, we're going to Craig Harbor. We're going to drop one family out. Then we're going to take another family up to Alexander Field or Cape Urshel. And the last group going to be transferred to another ship, taken to Resiland. You're going to be divided into three groups. And the shock and the anger, that's my uh, seemingly used to say, everything went crazy. Children started crying. Women started crying. Even the dogs started to howl. And the commotion it caused was just tremendous. And um, that's when some people would say realities set in. Yeah. Uh, that's when they realized that I uh, was going to be um, more serious than they thought, you know. Yeah, yeah. in the beginning it was not bad because they could visit other communities. Because this was a government ship, a medical ship. Yeah. Uh, doctors on board, checking people for TB. And and wh- whatever else has to be delivered to uh, the Eastern Arctic, uh, they call the Eastern Arctic Patrol, you know. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was not bad. But it turns out later on, they were to be the last people dropped off uh, to area of nothing. And uh, one of the founders of the Nunavut land claim, John Amorelis, says it was late we were landed on the moon when they were taken off the ship. And dropped
1: off on Cornwallis Island, Resolute Bay. Yeah. You initially went to the, the ship, initially crossed Hudson's Bay, I think, and went to Churchill first. And you had, in the, there was a doctor there that, from what I understand, uh, took two of the kids off the ship because they had TB and were sent away to a sanatorium in the south.
2: All I know, well, from our trip uh, two years before that, in 1953. I didn't hear anybody being taken off the ship to be sent to sanatorium. It's the opposite. There was one patient, John Wallace our older brother, Markucci, who was on board the ship. Obviously, he had been um, done well. And the government claimed their x-ray machine was broken and they could not diagnose him that summer, whether he had TB or not. But obviously... The signs of him having TB showed up in the fact that many of the relocates in Resolute got infected, and many were taken down to to Edmonton, which is under the jurisdiction of of Hittemir Hospital. Yeah. and that, so Markus did not get diagnosed. So uh, there was another case which was found out later in the original nineteen fifty three relocation. Samuel Amnakala's grandmother. It turns out she had TB, and uh, one of the RCMPs said, don't take her away to her hospital. And she ended up staying two years in for, and she had a TB. It was in 1955 when my brother, George B. Flaherty, and his family was being taken up. My sister-in-law, Raina, used to tell me, when we left Inokjuak, To go to the high Arctic, Mary, my daughter, was away because she had TB. Mary was taken down south for TB from Inujua, and when we left, she still hadn't come back. So when Mary was released, the government had no idea that her family had moved, so they took her back to Inujua. No parents. Oh, okay. They were told. They had been moved to the hierarchy. This is where it got me. They didn't just couldn't distinguish between Resolute Bay and fjord and the fact that Mary came from Field. And that really is a intensity of the government. And mm-hmm. poor Mary ended up in Resolute. Another year, ended up with Jacoci and Mary. And she was just getting... To know them, to her, they were her parents because she didn't remember anything else. So to her, they were becoming very close to her and attached third times, she had to move again. And they ended up in Greece field, in little Greece field, because George B, my brother, had been hired as a casual for the RCMP. And they had a little house and Martha would tell stories about how she and Mary would interact with each other, which wasn't always so easy for both of them. On top of that, uh, Martha had to go out and help the father go hunt seals because Jamie was too small. And then uh, here's Mary, doesn't know how to speak English. And you can just imagine the household, the Flaherty household, is poor George to be trying to look for seals. All she has is Martha. But I'm sure Martha wanted to stay home and work with Mary, play with Mary, get to know her. So it was a real dilemma for all of them, you know. And Mrs. Flaherty, you know, endured all that. She used to tell stories about her family being um, in a situation where she had to feed all these children. And then Peter comes along, Peter Flaherty. He was hungry a lot. And she used to contribute his condition to the fact he was not nourished properly at a certain age of his life where he really needed this critical nourishment and he missed many of it. And in the end, I think that's what causes condition to happen. Because he used to say Riny, Peter would be quite normal on one side of his face. Then when he would lie down on the other side, you could see some different Temperature of his head, like a heat coming off, or a different texture to to touch his face than this side. That's what yeah. she used to say. Yeah. And uh, as we all know, Peter never learned to talk properly. You know. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I'm just thinking. You know, lack of food must have contributed to his uh, late development in everywhere. You know.
1: Yeah. Mind. Everybody was up there was hungry a lot, you know, from what I hear. It was very difficult to find food, and absolutely, for sure, Peter was certainly malnourished, which contributed to his uh, not developing properly in in his mind.
2: Yeah.
1: You were made to believe there would be much wildlife and game to hunt and survive, and a promised return if you were not happy with the place. How true or false were these statements and promises by the government?
2: Well, I have to tell you, my mother was the daughter of a a minister. And I have found out my mother was quite, um, in many ways, witty. She knew things. And I think part of it is when you are a minister's daughter, you've got to behave in such just way. I think my mother was not always obedient little girl. That father was a minister. So my mother knew a lot of stuff. And I think her intellect, she took over with her when she got relocated. And she remembered many things in detail. What she said collaborates with generally what we were told, the relocation, that we were going to be in a two-year program whereas we can um, go back home after two years and all these lifestyle amenities, all the good stuff in life will be afforded to us. We will be looked after. We don't have to worry about anything. The men were told, don't bother to bring any of your big hunting equipment like a boat, big boat. Uh, don't worry about shelter that will be looked after. And uh, just bring what whatever you have. Pack your suitcase full and go. You don't need to bring anything extra. That kind of a, a attitude. So... The broken promise that my mother talked about, she used to talk about the broken promises. She could even quote the interpreter who who his name was. Somebody told me it was legal. He was a, a veteran interpreter for the government. And she used to even imitate his tone of his voice, slow, deliberate. If you are not happy, for any reason you are not dissatisfied, just go to the authorities and they will send you back. And she would never forget that thing. And then the other stuff, all the things you could need uh, will be available. And then she starts saying, available? What available? Every year, say uh, March, April, everything will be run out of the store the little trading store in Craig Harbor and Greek Fjord. They will run out of the basics, except for some reason tobacco never ran out, I guess. <laughs> uh, I never heard them talk about I have no more tobacco. But they always run out of flowers, all the basic things you need, the Khalunak food, uh, we call it, would be gone by April. And for a long time I had to learn to get used to having tea after tea without sugar or flour or bannock or biscuit. So it's when she started criticizing the government. Can you imagine you are four or five, six years old, and you're the youngest of the family. Your brothers and sisters are somewhere else, either hunting. All you're left is with your mom. And she's angry one day. She started... Reminiscing what the government told her. And it's scary. I had nowhere to go. And um, my mother would talk about those in times of hardship. You know, the broken promises. Yeah. Right. Your
1: father was one of the main men recruited for this relocation. Uh, He was uh, a respected man and a leader in your community in in Uktuak at the time. Tell us a bit about your father and the type of man he was.
2: Well, my father was the oldest of our family. He was the oldest, and then his second oldest, my uncle Pilipusi, came with him. He was leader of the traditional land where we lived before we came up, a place called Uwaxilbik, which is only about 20 miles from Nyukjuwa. I've been there. One of my brothers, Sam Willie, had moved back to Inukjuak after 1978. I went to visit Inukjuak uh, because I missed my brother already. Because he was the only father figure I uh, I ever had. I, although I had two older brothers, but Sam Willie was like a father to me. So when, when I was in when I was in Inukjuak in 1979, 78, uh, we went to Ugaselvi. And he said, this is probably the tent ring over here where you were probably born, and 20 miles. That's where my father led his group of people. But he was known to be um, one of the better hunters and looked after people around, uh, uh, not just in the Wasilby, but in the close by areas. And uh, he was a rising carver. Uh, the carving industry had just been introduced by the Houston family and in Cape Dorset and in Inyongju. And my father already had a carving talent. And life was starting to get much better in Ingjou when they were moved. Don't forget, this is not long after World War II, and Canada was going through some good economic time. And carving industry was a new industry and and it was just picking up and he was already one of the noted ones. So when he went up, my mother said, your father, when he came up, he was silent. It's strange. His behavior completely changed. He did not talk much. He was just there, almost just there. When he came up, I now know years later, when one of the grandchildren of Samuel Amnakallak from Pondinlet told me, your father. Father, my grandfather used to tell me, regretted moving up. He did not say anything, did not know how to talk to his children. Like he was afraid that, I don't know, uh, he would be accused of or he, he just didn't know how to tell them I made a mistake. That's what he wanted to tell his family up here when he moved. I made a mistake because that's what he told Samuel, you know, I made a mistake. I don't know what to tell my family. And he was just silent about it. And uh, I'm really sad there was no one else to talk to him about it, you know, just him and Samuel. When he came up here, my mother said he changed.
1: Yeah, it must have dawned on him at some point shortly after arriving the terrible situation he put his family in. And
2: uh, yeah, yeah, name, that's what it was. You know, that was the you know. situation. Uh, he was in, uh, in it was a big predicament. Sadly, his heart just gave out 10 months after being moved. Yeah, yeah, he passed so away. Something I had, to, I had to learn to, uh, you know, it's, it's something you don't uh put it out of your mind, even yeah, it comes back. He passed away 10 months after arriving, be sure. A 10-month, yes. Yeah. What was his name, Paddy? My mother used to say your father's name was Aisha. Aisha. I-S-A, but his nickname was Ahetesu, meaning big, fat. (laughs) My father was uh, a quite outgoing character. Yeah. And uh, he had a lot of friends that used to uh, fun with him and uh, interpret his name. Big Isa into achetuchuk, meaning this guy's uh, had too much to eat. <laughs> no, his name was Isa achetuchuk. Okay. Ended up being his last name, yeah. Well, where did the name Patty come from? It's an old Irish name for Patrick, yeah. Okay. It's his party is nickname more than anything. Okay. Yeah. I've seen his signature in one of the documents. Yeah. His name was Patty. Pa- Patty. Uh, That's what he put, but it was, in those days, we were E-numbers, E-numbers.
1: Right. Right after. There was an RCMP post up both in Greece Fiord and Resolute Bay when you arrived. Describe your relationship with the RCMP and their role with regards to your
2: relocation. There was one RCMP corporal uh, who was in charge of the whole relocation quite seriously. He dictated where we were to go because he was under the direction of the government, uh, about the relocation. We spent one week in Craig Harbor, uh, RCMP post, which is 30 miles, uh, east, east of here. And we, um, moved to Linton peninsula a week later, uh, because that's how he wanted it. And it was notable thing to read. After we got uh, moved to Linton Peninsula, he makes a report about the relocation. And he talked about the spot he took us to, Linton Peninsula. And he said, he tells a little story about the relocation. It was called a rehabilitation program. That's what they call it. That was the official name of our move called rehabilitation. So we were to be rehabilitated to yeah. a place where there's nothing. Okay. Just to become reliable Eskimos, we are surviving in harsh environment with yeah. nothing, which yeah. is the way Inuits have always been. That's what they said.
1: Yeah.
2: And so he was quite dictatorial about many things. When in one of the trading trips to Craig Harbor, some of the men at one time were forced to kill two muskox for the dogs because it's the government animal muskox. We had to report it. because they always reminded the hunters, if you kill muskox, you're gonna tell us, we'll, we'll fine you $5,000. Well, we'll put you in jail, that kind of attitude. And he didn't hesitate to tell us that. So he moved us where we were a week later and one of the hunters killed the muskox because they had to, no no dog food or anything to eat for that matter. We went to the spot where we had killed the muskox a few years back because our dogs were hungry. Here's sergeant just doing his police work, picking up the um, gun casings with a pencil, make sure he doesn't touch them, puts them in a bag. <laughs> Real policeman work. But not lucky you, you know, like nothing happened. He didn't charge anyone. But he made a note of the notes that he did. He said, yeah. I have to do it. You know? So he was quite stern at times. Yeah. Other than yeah. that, the special constables, which under my one of my brothers, oh, Josephine, my, my brother worked under Casual, as a Casual, was uh, named uh, Lazarus Khayag. Uh, they were good folk, you know he would work towards to make sure we were fine. And it was in their best interest, the RCMP. It was in the best interest of the RCMP to make sure nothing ever happened to us. So, um, you know, when you think about it, technically, uh, if anything happened to us, it'd be their fault, really, when you think about it. yeah. When they moved to 30 miles away, they made sure the note was written we have moved the relocated to a place called Linsham Peninsula. It's a nice spot, quite ways far enough away that the Eskimos will not come to post to ask for a handout.
1: Right. Crazy. That
2: was the attitude we were uh, subject to, you know, in those days. Yeah,
1: the, I guess the musklox was considered an endangered species at the time and protected by the government. And uh, you were told that if you killed the muskox, you had to report it or you'd go to jail or, or get fined. You should have just told them, take us all to jail. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's,
2: it's it, irony. It is. It's crazy. It's uh, ironic. Yeah, uh, this issue you're talking about was enacted from 1917. You can see the documentation. And this very same species we're talking about, we got involved in lifting the rules in 1968. My brother Sam Willie, during one of the annual visits by the territorial government commissioner Hudson, made a big case out of it. And Commissioner Hudson from NWT, which is where the jurisdiction is under, and he told him, "We go hunting." And when we're traveling overland, our dogs go hungry. There's muskhouse all around us and we can't touch them. Do something about it. And they did. Yeah. 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 But you're right. Yeah. They were they were endangered species according to the government until nineteen sixty eight. Yeah.
1: They're almost like considered more important than you guys, you people. Like, you know. Yeah. Anyway, they're like than human people, like humans.
2: Can you imagine? You're, you're put in the Linsan Peninsula and you and you landed and you're putting your tent up, but up the hill over there are archaeological remains. They also made a note, don't touch the archaeological sites there. The rocks are gone. Yeah. You're not supposed to touch these things. To the Inuit people, it, it's nonsense.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible that like you, you know, you were barely surviving, and there's muskox all around you, and you couldn't shoot any of them to uh, eat, uh, to kill them to to eat them for your for your for your, your families for survival. It's just a, yeah, it's just a total lack of understanding. They we're
2: not as important as they were.
1: No, exactly. Yeah, you went. Uh, you said that you went back to Inuvik in 1978. Why didn't you stay like why didn't you why didn't you move back to anrak?
2: They were not native to me. Uh, I didn't know the country. I knew just getting to know my family, and I'm still slowly going to know them over the years, but uh, I don't know them in the hindsight of what what the government did to us. We don't like to admit it, but in a way, this has become home for those of us who were young enough to know that and 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 the children that we have here, but um no, I, I don't know in, so yeah,
1: I guess you grew up there. It's, it was you know it's it's the home that you became to know
2: the only home I know, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, we're gonna the end of the podcast interview, I just want to ask you, what's Greece view like today? I mean, the food that you get comes from the ship, right the the c d house called a sea lift, and the ship takes your food up uh, once a year. They don't yeah. fly any food in. It's too expensive to fly in. And it's expensive as it is when it comes on the ship, right?
2: All the basic stuff that we need, flowers and sugar and, and all the canned goods that we need, we will order through a private company um, and ship from Montreal out of our own pocket. And um, all the fresh food, all the produce and are regularly shipped every week. So many times a week. But everything is precarious. Everything is fragile. We have to worry about timing as well. So you got to put up with all the regulations of uh, shipping costs, which is right now, today, is one one of the uh, issues that I am fighting. We were fighting the relocation issues, and now we're fighting the... The cost of living issue up here, not just for Greece Fair, but for Nunavut, all, all in all, because it, we watch companies come up. We watch the government entities come up. There's a military up further north called Alert, which is a federal entity. Then there's the Environment Canada Weather Station in Eureka. And then there's the RCMP. Then there's a, a polo shop, which is the government, Into the scientific community. By the way, polar shelf, polar continental shelf community, uh, the scientific community was possible only because of us, because we are the civilian component. And makes you wonder how serious does the government takes his or her civilian component? We are the civilian component. We don't get recognized for our contribution. The federal government entities I just told you about, if they start running low on stakes and all the good stuff they need to survive in isolation, they will have a regular, as someone told me one time, milk run to alert to get all of their supplies uh, up to par again for quarterly or things like that. I was told um, that the tragedy, you know, we all know about the Hercules tragedy when one of the Hercules crashed trying to go to alert. That was one of their milk runs. There was a, a barber on board, someone to do some other stuff in in alert. There were civilian people that were doing their quarterly visit to alert. That's how well they looked after them. These people never spend any money Uh, except probably for their um, luxuries, like they have to pay for themselves. Everything else is looked. All the basic stuff is looked after. Swimming pool, there's a bar, there's a movie theater. You name it, it's a military area. And then Eureka. Eureka is a weather station. It's not far from Resolute. I've been to Resolute when they're doing a crew change to Eureka. If Environment Canada government, we haven't had a jet service in Resolute for about more than 20 years, ever since uh, uh, Little Cornwallis Island closed. At the time, I was in Resolute. This was about a few years ago. Every few years ago, every so often, they will get a crew change. Of the environment people, Environment Canada will have a jet come from Ottawa, Landing Resolute for fuel, and then they go to Eureka, do a crew change, and fly back down to on a jet. Wow. And wow. this is my income tax dollars at work, yeah. you know, because we pay for those. But Resolute, Greece, Fuel, you know, everything else, uh, We they don't use that service anymore because mm-hmm. they said there's no mind to pay for it. Something doesn't make sense.
1: You always say that. They always say that. I want to ask you about one last question, and it's an opportunity for you to promote your book that you wrote. Or you finished recently, published. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your book and uh, what's the title? And uh, where where can people find it?
2: <laughs> I, I'm going to have to uh, get that in the, in in through the internet. It's the book's called uh, "What I Remember, What I Know." You can. Do one. You can order one through Inhabit Media, which I'm proud to uh, work with, uh, and and uh, one of the part owners is uh, one of my in-laws from the Chalui. And um, you can order through that Inhabit Media, or you can one sign, You can order from us. It costs you a little bit of extra cost to a postage. I do my signing at home, and someone in here I will. Uh, do you want to give your uh, email? Yeah, it's it just my email is canada at gmail.com. The email that you guys use to contact me. Okay. K A M A T A M I U Q, canada milk
1: at gmail.com. Okay.
2: Yeah. By the way, c- talking about cost, I just wanted to finish. I did a, someone to a, a check on a cost of, I use ginger ale pop. How much it costs. There are days when pop will cost up to $7. Sometimes it'll cost $10 or $20. Whatever when pop is run out. Can. 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 One wow. can. Yeah. Yeah, one okay. can. I've seen people run out of uh, Coca-Cola. I've seen people carrying two cases of uh, Coca-Cola, 24 each. And they are one case, $120. And guy's carrying two. This is oh, in July. Jeez. July. And the guy Jeez. has no qualm. He, he, he's not even talking about it. It's his groceries. And then he's carrying two cases of pop. <laughs> That's 240, two, two 240 bucks. I don't know how much the groceries are. I oh, mean, this geez. is quite some time ago. So I had a guy tested a can of pop, let's say, cost $1 in Montreal. That's a lot, I mean, $1 a lot. By the time when you check the cost of living and further north you go, more expensive, it can be $18, 18 bucks. What was once $1 in Montreal becomes 18. What is happening, Gordon, is that our government is telling people how costly it is to run lives up here. But they are the only ones who can change it. They're the government. They right. can change the regulation. Yep. And we have found out, if I ordered something for $100, it will be for dollars plus $100 up to a certain latitude in the map, 76 degrees. But after 76 degrees, Greasefield is 77. 76 degrees is in the middle of John, uh, Jonestown, which is 20 miles. After 20 miles up, it's 77 degrees. The increase rate is 33 and one-third percent. Wow. So you can imagine if something costs 100 bucks up to 76 degrees, certain uh, degrees, and after 20 miles, it increases one-third. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah, it is. We can't do anything about it. We're not government. Yeah. The government of Canada can do something about it.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much. I've been talking to Larry Outerlook. He's a true survivor of the relocation of Inuit from northern Quebec to the High Arctic, where he lives now in the hamlet of Greece Fjord. Thank you, Larry. You have an incredible story of survival, courage, and resiliency. And it's such a heartbreaking story to hear about how the government betrayed you and told you lies and forced you to move up there for the government to claim the islands as part of Canada. They should have just told you the truth in the beginning and provided you for with better, better, you know, way of living, better accommodations, which proved to be not right. Mm-hmm. And I feel for you and, uh, and everybody that had to go through this and, and I really want to thank you on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation for taking the time to, to talk to us today.
2: Nakumi. Nakumi, yeah.
0: Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.